There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now here are your hosts, Kim Foskey and Dr. Dana Saperstein. All right, Fear Me Out audience, you ready to get real today on this episode? Dana, have you ever watched the show Mythbusters? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that one. Well, we're going to destroy some myth today. In fact, the uh, greatest myth that's ever been perpetuated upon mankind, and that is the fear of not being happy. I think uh, we have Harvard professors um, that tell you that you should always be happy. We have books that tell you you should always be happy. We have movies that tell you sh- should always be happy. And I'm sure you have a friend or two that says, you should always be happy. But are you happy all the time? Uh, Not me. Are your clients happy all the time? You know, Kim, to tell you the truth, I would say maybe a quarter of the people that come to see me come to see me because they think there's something wrong with them that they're not happy. So why did this notion get started that uh, we should be perpetually happy? Uh, I'm not sure exactly why it got started, but I know why it's been reinforced by the culture that we live in. I think our economy would collapse if people weren't made to feel bad about not being happy all the time because most of us either medicate ourselves or buy stuff we don't need in order to numb that feeling of not being happy all the time. If if I read it correctly, I think the notion of happiness began in the uh, Enlightenment era back in the, in, sometime in the 1800s, um, where some scholars, some scientists thought that, that being happy was going to be the key to uh, a life of fulfillment and, and grandiosity and, and so on and so forth, and um, chose to ignore the other emotions that, uh, that we uh, all humans uh, deal with on a day-to-day basis. Um, so I'm sure, uh, again, that we look at it as a bad pathology. Not being uh, happy. Not being mean? happy. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And so like you said, your clients that come in to see you professionally mm-hmm. think there's something wrong with them because they're not happy all the time. Absolutely. You know, when someone comes to see me and they say, you know, I really want to do therapy because I'm not a happy person. Um, my initial response is, I'm really sorry, but I can't help you. And they look at me with, you know, an incredible puzzled expression. Like, what do you mean you can't help me? And my response is, well, there is no such thing as being happy. And I think that that's the point that you and I feel really strongly about is that you cannot be a feeling. Happiness is a feeling and you cannot be a feeling. And I can't stress that strongly enough that you can't be hungry. You can't be any feeling. You can feel those feelings. But somehow we have this very bizarre notion that you can be the feeling of happiness. And um, it sets people up to believe that there's something really wrong with their lives and that they failed in some way. 
and that, you know, social media portrays people as being happy all the time. But, you know, those five minutes that you're posting that stuff on social media, what about the other 24 and a half or 23 and a half hours that uh, you have to function in as a normal person? Yeah, and I don't even know in those five minutes if those people are actually really happy or not. Well, because who would put it in the universe that you weren't happy, right? right. I mean, I'm sure there's a few people that post you know, their miserable life and how depressed they are and, and whether they're looking for some level of empathy or, or sympathy out there. But most of us aren't going to do that, right? We're going to be out there portraying to everyone we know our best acting job that, hey, we live our best life. That's right. And again, the, the saddest thing that I see is people's feelings that they've failed because they're not happy. And so my response is, well, are you full all the time or do you eat on occasion? And, you know, again, people look at me that, you know, they're puzzled and, you know, you eat because you feel hungry or you feel sad and you're eating for comfort. But generally speaking, how long does food last inside your belly before you need to eat again? Just a few hours. That's right. And, and you don't seem hugely upset and sad because you get hungry after a while and have to eat again. Because you don't have the expectation that you're going to be full and just walk around as a full person. But we have this uh, stupid idea that we should walk around as a happy person despite whatever it is that's happening in our lives. And it's, in, it's, it's really ridiculous and um, extremely damaging to people. And um, that's why you and I are taking such a strong stand that um, what we encourage people to consider is that uh, the, the, the thing to strive for is neutrality. You and I are familiar with a with a Harvard professor that has a fairly well known book out there that talks about being happy all the time, and he perpetuates that that is something that humans can actually do. Why do you think that that somebody that's intellectual and and highly educated doesn't understand that we can't be an emotion? Well, I you know I I don't know that anybody's ever really sort of put the idea out there that happiness it doesn't really exist and that it's a false narrative about how you can live in the world. So if you can come up with a recipe why, where somebody can be happy all the time, you're going to sell 8 billion books because everybody wants to be happy all the time. I mean, uh, you know, who wouldn't want to walk around feeling great 24 hours a day? Uh, that would be ideologically that would be fantastic yeah <laughs> what about experientially <laughs> um that would be great too but i don't think it's very sustainable no because you can't be full all the time you know you can't be awake all the time we sleep half of our well, i mean not half of our lives but you know at least a third of our lives we're asleep are you happy when you're sleeping are you worried that you're not happy when you're sleeping? This it depends on what kind of dreams you're having. Well, that's true. <laughs> oh, man. So here's what I explain to people, um, it, depending on how old they are. But, you know, we used to drive cars that had manual transmission, right? So the transmission... I do remember those days. Yeah, so the transmission was always in neutral when you started the car. Because if you started the car with the, with the transmission in reverse or in forward, it would just lurch ahead and die. So the, the, the cars were built with this notion that you just leave it in neutral and then depending on what direction you want to go, you know, you engage the gear and push on the clutch and you can go forward or backwards. And so at that position of neutrality, 
if you think about it from that perspective, is what I ask people to learn how to strive for on an emotional level. It's not that you feel bad or that's not that you're feeling happy. It's that you're feeling sort of neutral and content, and that gives you the ability to deal with the difficult things in life from a neutral position and to create as much joy as possible, which will help you feel happy while you're experiencing whatever it is that you're doing that brings you joy. Yeah, I call that middle lane syndrome. And, you know, when I work with clients in business, the middle lane syndrome is not where you want to be. And I equate that to a three-lane highway where you have a slow lane, a middle lane, and a fast lane, right? The, the slow lane is the, the too cautious lane that I want to go probably five miles under the speed limit because I don't want anything to happen to me. The middle lane is for those people who don't want to be seen as the people in the slow lane. And then the, fa- the, the fast lane is that lane where, you know, everybody's zooming by you trying to get somewhere in a hurry and get to that finish line, right? And so that's that fine line you walk in, in business. But what we're talking about here in, in trying to achieve emotion neutrality is actually being in that middle lane. So some days you got to slow it down a little bit for it to work for you, life to work for you. And some days you want to speed it up. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, I think that um, um, if you can accept the idea that there's no such thing as happiness, it could come as a huge relief to you because then you don't have to try to be a feeling, which is a contradiction just in itself. If you think about it from that perspective, and then it gives you the opportunity to face life's difficulties and not feel bad that you're not happy. And it gives you the opportunity to create joyful experiences, which leaves you feeling happy. So from that, from that baseline is where we create joy from. Yes. Well, I think that joy and happiness are sort of interchangeable, but you can't feel joy all the time. It's impossible. There's too much in life that is difficult and frightening and and overwhelming. And so, yeah, of course, I try to encourage people to strive for uh, creating joyful experiences for themselves. But sometimes it's just a huge relief to know there's nothing wrong with you, that you're not walking around feeling happy all the time. So how, how did you come to this conclusion that uh, about emotional neutrality in your life? Um, you know, I'm not, I wish I could tell you the answer to that question. It just occurred to me one day when I was... Um, I think probably when I was watching TV and I was noticing all the commercials on TV and most of them have to do with taking drugs for whatever's wrong with you now or uh, drinking alcohol or finding some way of distracting yourself from how you feel because, um, um, you know, that's what sells. And then I started thinking about how the media works and the media is always pumping people with as much fear as possible all the time because if you're at a certain level of fear... You're going to buy stuff you don't need in order to make yourself feel better. You're going to drink too much. You're going to eat too much. You're going to work too hard. You're going to do all the things that you can not to admit to yourself that you're not a, in quotes, happy person. So it just occurred to me over time that um, we're being brainwashed into believing that, that there's such a thing as happiness when there isn't because it serves the economy and it serves politicians and, you know, it serves the medical community. It serves my professional uh, uh, community. So uh, again, I, I may dislike it, but it's certainly a huge part of our culture. Yeah, if everybody was happy, no, we need you. 
That's right. I could do, I could I could retire a happy kind of a happy guy because because <laughs> I have there's no need for me anymore. The waiting room would be empty. The waiting room would be empty. You know, we don't we don't come out of the womb angry. Um, maybe we do come out of the womb ang- angry because now we're in this cold, lighted place where it's not comfortable. But we don't come out with with these preconceived notions. So wh- where where do you think? In, in life, do we get indoctrinated into this idea that we always have to be happy? Um, I mean, does it start? Does it start early on? Is this something as adults we begin to realize? Is it something that after we've been through a number of relationships or we've had something bad happen to us? Where where, where do you think this kind of starts? I, I only thinking back in my own life in thinking, okay, so when did I stop thinking I was happy and I needed to be happy? Well, you know, Kim, I think it depends on the culture of the family that you come from. Um, a lot of times, if you're a sensitive person, you come into the world being able to feel everything that's happening around you. And um, a lot of times, part of what you feel is the pain of the family that you're born into. And that can be threatening to parents if the parents are not the kind of people that deal with the way that they feel and are actively working on evolving as people themselves. So usually what happens once you start to become aware of what's happening around you is you get shamed into submission. That you're that either overtly or covertly, you're told that you're making a big deal about things that you shouldn't and that you should just, you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and just, you know, perform rather than really let yourself feel what you feel. So you start to get conditioned into believing that your feelings don't matter and that you're just supposed to go through life kind of cruising along and being okay and trying really hard to be whatever it is that your family wants you to be. And uh, again, the more sensitive you are, the more that's sort of in contradiction to how it is that the world feels to you. And it's quite confusing for people. Um, We've talked in other podcasts about the idea that um, under these circumstances, children often start to create a false self based on what the family wants of them because there's nothing that is more frightening to a kid than feeling abandoned by the family, especially emotionally. So you just bend yourself into the shape of a pretzel and and start acting a certain way because you want to feel safe and included in the family. The problem is that you can't trust the love that's coming your way if it's based on false pretenses. So people pretend like they're happy. They pretend like everything's okay and and that they don't notice, you know, the problems that are happening around them, and especially within their family. And um, oftentimes that, you know, later on in life leads to depression and anxiety and feelings of un, of being, you know, very much not at ease at all because um, you, you've lost yourself in a certain way. And you just have to pretend like you're happy all the time. So um, it depend, really does, though, depend on your family. In my family, the concept of happiness was not even on the, on the radar. In my family, my mom was the person that uh, uh, set the tone, and that tone was either super anxious or in a panic, um, because that was her connection to the world, was either being really, really anxious or in a panic. So the happiness was not part of that equation. But um, again, you know, coming from a Jewish family, that's not unusual that there's a lot of anxiety, because, um, uh, you know, historically, it's not a, it's a culture that suffered a great deal of the hands of, of others. Um, so, you know, happiness is important, but it's not as important as, uh, you know, functioning and being safe. 
How does fear play a role in not being happy? Well, what I see is that, you know, people feel scared that there's something wrong with them because they're not walking around feeling happy all the time because um, either because they're being shamed by the people around them or they're being shamed by the culture around them or the media or whatever it might be. And then if you go to the self-help section in any bookstore, you're going to find a hundred books on how to be happy and what's wrong with you that you're not happy. And there's, you know, the, everyone's got us a, a secret formula that they put out that, uh, five uh, key ways to be happy right. in your life. That's right. Um, you know, whatever, whatever they are, I haven't read any of them because I don't appreciate that notion, but, but you know, the, the, who of all of us don't engage in magical thinking? We do. You're right. I mean, we, we definitely have this curated opinion in our head of, of how life is supposed to be, mm-hmm. how we're supposed to be. And, you know, we're looking for that simple fix, right? I think again, like you talked about, there's a hundred books or more out there on, on how to be happy and the keys to being happy there. There is no magical solution and there is no key to doing it. Right. Well, that, that fellow that you were mentioning previously who wrote the the latest, uh, uh, bestseller on happiness, Arthur Brooks, by the way. Well, I sent him a note. He did not respond, but I sent him the note saying, you know, have it, has it ever occurred to you that you're supporting a false notion and that you could really help people if you help them understand that, uh, that's, you know, creating experiences that give you joy. That's really, really important. But being happy is a complete false belief system that just creates misery. And if world experts tell you that there's something wrong with you, that you're not happy, it's quite confusing and very demoralizing. And it leaves most of us who are not happy all the time wondering what's wrong with us. We're talking about, um, you know, emotional neutrality and, and, and happiness and, and other emotions. Those are feelings, right? Right. So people may be listening that are thinking, wow, emotional neutrality. I never thought of it that way. What's that feel like? What's emotional neutrality feel like? Well, what it feels like to me is that I'm okay. People ask me all the time, how are you today? And I say, okay. And I I really am feeling okay a lot of the time because I'm ready for whatever the moment is going to bring to me. And I don't feel scared that I'm just okay because to me it's not negative to be okay. Uh, I I will tell you that sometimes people look at me like they're puzzled because when they ask me how I'm doing and they say, oh, I'm great, everything's wonderful, you know. Uh, I just say I'm okay. I don't say it with a with a tone of misery. I just say it like it is, which is I'm a neutral right now, waiting to see what's going to happen at any moment, so that I can rise to that occasion of uh, of finding some joy because I love feeling joyful. I think it's wonderful, and I also appreciate the fact that if you have a life without pain, you're either dead or in complete denial because nobody has a life without pain. I've never met a single person who hasn't had struggles and difficulties and losses and um, uh, all ki- of all kinds. Um, and what I've noticed more than anything, Kim, is that how you feel about yourself deep down inside determines how much joy you're going to let yourself have anyway. Um, and what I mean by that is that I can't tell you how many people that I've, uh, as an example, I, I, uh, I used to go to Mexico surfing all the time with a group of about 15, 16 people. And what I noticed is that, you know, we're all friends and and we had some of the most ecstatic, joyful experiences I've ever had because the place that we stayed at was beyond description in terms of how wonderful it was. The 
perfect house with a cook that, you know, makes gourmet meals and infinity pool looking out over a surf break that is to die for. And because it's in Mexico, they own the surf break. So you can't even surf there unless you're staying at the, at the house. So, um, you know, for anybody who's a surfer out there, being able to surf with your friends and some of the best waves in the world is an incredibly joyful experience. And what I noticed more than, more than ever was that at the end of a surf session, could be as long as five hours, my body's completely filled with endorphins and I feel like I'm, you know, on another planet because it feels so good. And then get out of the water, sit in the infinity pool, looking out over the surf break. And I would say that almost everyone, the first thing they did when they got out of the water was have a beer. And it was stunning to me because alcohol is a way that people celebrate and they were celebrating a good surf out there. But on a physiological level, what alcohol does, it's a depressant. Even though you might feel a little bit of elation, it really depresses your central nervous system. And I would think to myself, what are you guys doing? If I drank right now, these chemicals that I just spent five hours creating inside my body would just diminish and, and go away. Why would you want to tamper with this? It feels so wonderful. But I think that more often than not, it scared people to feel that good. If they wanted to sabotage the joy. Yeah, and it wasn't a conscious thing, by the way. None of these people, you know, have alcohol problems. It's not like, uh, you know, like they were alcoholics and they had to drink. It's just that most people have a tendency to want to keep things neutral, even though they don't even know that that's what they're doing. So they were diminishing their joy and their feelings of what we would call happiness. To get back uh, to neutrality. To get back to neutrality, even though you're not supposed to be neutral, you're supposed to be happy all the time. And it was very confusing to me. I never said anything to anybody because I just, um, you know, it wasn't, that's not the place for it. But I watch people um, all the time. And I noticed that, um, you know, you win a sporting event or you have some uh, amazingly um, a wonderful experience. And the first thing you want to do is um, diminish the joy and diminish the excitement by having something to drink or eating too much or whatever it might be to bring yourself back to a state of numbness and kind of, uh, uh, you know, and robbing yourself of joy. There's a, uh, a statement or a meme out there. It says it's, uh, it's okay to be okay. And I want to go back to something you said earlier of, of the acknowledgement of being okay. Because when somebody asks how you're doing and you say, okay, to me, that's an automatic cop-out. Right. That's not, you're, you're not being vulnerable. You're not being transparent. It's like, that's the standard answer, uh-huh. right? It's like when my kids say, sure. Well, that's half yes and half no, right? <laughs> and so being okay seems that to me to be the same answer, right? So, you know, nobody wants to hear I'm shitty or I feel horrible, right? Because they're like, ooh, okay, that ends the conversation right away. Right. And then if you say I'm fantastic or I'm phenomenal, they think bullshit. Right. Right. But so you can't win. You can't win by saying I'm phenomenal. You can't win by saying I'm okay. And you can't win by saying I feel like shit. Right. So because we're so condi- we're so conditioned in these in these answers, we don't even know where we stand in life. Well, we're supposed to stand in life anymore. So am I supposed to change it from okay to I'm neutral? Well, I I, I, I don't even know. I don't I know. I don't know that. what the I don't know what the answer is to be. I I mean be. Again, I hate to sound judgy here, but uh-huh. it's like, you know, you hear people, you know, I have a friend that says, every time you ask, so good. And it's like, well, no, you can't be so good 100% of the time, <laughs> right? Yeah. 
you know, but you, you know, we were either conditioned to be positive or positive about ourselves and, and feeling good about ourselves. And, and we just don't want to give a standard answer or we certainly don't want to give the answer that, that we're not feeling okay about ourselves. And well, I, so- and I just think that people need to be a little bit more transparent and actually, you know, say how you feel. Well, what would you feel? I mean, how would you react if somebody that you cared about and you said, Hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm really shitty. Well, I mean, what would your reaction be? Uh, well, I would be fine. I'm fine with that because I want my my friends and acquaintances to actually be truthful with me. And if there's something bothering them, yeah. they should say that. Not that I'm going to jump in and, and get all up in their business about it, but I would say, God, I'm sorry to hear that. If there's anything I can do for you, let me know. Right. But I'd rather have somebody tell me that than a thousand's, I'm, I'm so good or I'm phenomenal. I'm fantastic. Right. Um, because, well, so. because we just, we're, we're living and again, going back to social media, right? I mean, you could sit there right now and thumb through for the people on the, that are listening. I'm sure the majority of you have social media and you can thumb through all the social media and it's everybody living their best life. It's not, it's not realistic. You know, social media is a fantasy, Right. right. And yeah, granted, you can put pictures of your vacation and sure you're seeking joy and stuff like that. But, you know, it's not happening every day of your life there. And again, like we started this podcast and like you've eloquently explained, we got to stop living this lie that happiness is is something is the is the zenith that we need to achieve. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, being okay is okay. Well, I could say I'm cruising in neutral. One of the things that, that I want you to talk about a little bit, because I've always considered you to be a hedonist Uh and don't take that from a sexual standpoint, but a hedonistic lifestyle, right? That you've been somebody that in the 25 plus years that I've known you has always seeked out joy in your life and, and have done a really good job of achieving that. So can, can you talk a little bit about leading a hedonistic life? Well, I, I call myself a responsible hedonist okay. because I, I take her, <laughs> I take her a business first. Sounds like a responsible nudist or something yeah, like that, yeah. right? That I'm yes. not doing it out in public. That's right. I, I, when I'm naked, I always put sunscreen on so I don't burn myself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. <laughs> well, I, you know, this, I came up with this notion when I was in my twenties and I was working in a psychiatric ward and, um, the medical director of the ward was a really, really, really uptight, really sort of tight ass person. And, and uh, um, she was not an advocate of joking around and having fun. And when I'm around people, I really like to joke around with people and Come have on, as man. much fun work, as I can. Works work, okay? Well, You're supposed I to be was, in a work I, mode. I, but see, I would do my job. I did everything that was required of me. I was being facetious. But I was also a smartass and would make jokes a lot because I like making people laugh and it was fun. Plus, when you're working in a really super serious environment, um, sometimes it takes a bit of the uh, tension away when you joke around. So we were sitting in a, in a staff meeting and, you know, I was putzing around having a good time making people laugh. And all of a sudden the medical director looked at me with scorn and disdain. And she said to me, oh my God, you're such a hedonist. And I thought to myself, wow, I didn't think she ever noticed. <laughs> I got called sophomoric at work once. Right. Which is probably worse than being a hedonist. So I started laughing and I said to her, oh my God, it's like one of the 
nicest things anybody's ever said to me. And, um, you know, after watching Sphincter lockdown, <laughs> she didn't really say anything, but steam was pouring out of her ears. And I thought to myself, you know, she's actually really, she's right. I try as hard as I can to have fun, but also be super responsible at the same time. So in the course of my career, I always set aside time for surfing because that was my uh, main source of joy besides, you know, being with my family and hanging out. So, I, you know, I used to take every Wednesday morning off and, and meet with my friends. Luckily, they had Wednesday morning off too, all the way from high school through, you know, our 50s. And I, I will tell you that those are the, some of the most joyful experiences in my life. So, so how, how did you get there, Bo? I mean, it's, it's probably not something that you had an epiphany one day and said that I'm going to acquiesce from living this kind of life to living this kind of life now of being a responsible hedonist. I mean, this must be something that you kind of grew up with and, and went with in your adult life, I well, imagine. As uptight as my father was about making a living and all that stuff, he had a really good sense of humor. So he taught me to joke around because in his idea about life, it's okay to joke with people and tease people and, and have a laugh with them. And I, that, that just came really easily to me because I'm a smart ass by nature. So, um, and, I, and I always looked at adults when I was a kid and, th and thought to myself, why would anybody want to be one of those? Why would anybody want to be an adult? It just seems so serious and, you know, you got to give up the fun of being a kid. Um, not that being a kid is always a ton of fun, but still, I just thought adulthood is totally overrated. So I chose a career where I could be in business for myself and make my own hours. And um, again, I never missed a mortgage payment. I always made sure my family had a roof over their head and all the food they needed. I actually started a second business in order to, uh, to generate extra income so I could buy surfboards and take my family on nice vacations and go out to really nice dinners. So it's not as though I didn't, um, you know, take care of business, but I also spent as much time surfing and, and playing as I possibly could because I just thought, you know, well, why would you want to live a life without having fun? It just seems so silly. Like, what's the point of working your ass off if you don't really enjoy yourself? Plus, I'm really lucky that I've always really enjoyed my career. So I'm not somebody who walked up the stairs to my office thinking, oh, fuck, I can't, I hate going to work and you know, being miserable, I, I always look forward to it because the people that I see and the only people that I will see are people who I really like. So I would look forward to seeing the people that um, came to see me. And if it was somebody that, uh, um, you know, I didn't really like very much in the first meeting, I would say, you know, I'm not really the right person to work with you. I didn't want to hurt the person's feelings. But, you know, if, if, you, if you can't feel joy in what you're doing, even though being a therapist is a really serious business, especially because, you know, I specialize in trauma and the, when the amount of pain that comes into my life is more than anybody possibly could ever imagine, um, I still can approach it with a feeling of joy because I look at it as a compliment that people feel safe enough to expose the depth of their vulnerability with me. So, you know, try to put a positive spin on it. Um, even though it's very serious business. And I do occasionally joke around with people that come to see me because, you know, it, it cuts down a bit on the tension. Um, plus, I'm just that kind of a person. If they have comedy traffic school, do they have comedy therapy as well? Uh, I, you know, there used to be a therapist uh, actually in Santa Barbara that did laugh therapy. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to demean therapy at that point, but it, it, it just seemed... A bit 
kind of appropriate. And, and, you know, I saw uh, the only reason I brought it up, I saw as a bus city bus was going by today, there was somebody advertising for ecotherapy. If, if, if you're not getting through or you've had enough of talk therapy, try ecotherapy. What's that? I have no idea. Oh, okay. But I I need to, (laughs) I, I need to look it up. So obviously there are multiple kinds of therapy out there, but Why, if we're all a combination of and a mixed bag of emotions on a, on a daily basis, why, why do most of us, and I'm probably being truthful and saying most of us, including myself at, at various periods of my life, um, fearful of seeking out joy? Well, I think it's not necessarily that we're fearful of seeking it out. I think it's so we don't feel like we deserve it. Uh, deep down inside, when you're made to feel ashamed of yourself and bad about yourself and people take advantage of you and in your situation abuse you, h- how does a little kid believe they deserve anything good under those circumstances? Because as children, we always blame ourselves for whatever is happening to us and not happening for us. So um, I think that, that uh, again, what right do you have to feel joyful when you've been so mistreated and, and made to feel so ashamed of yourself? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it. I agree that that voice and that feeling was definitely inside of me. And to me, I think there became a demarcation point at some point in my life where I'm thinking, why Why am I doing this? Why am I holding myself back? It's not doing me any favors. It's just making, it's compounding things, making it worse. And so I probably did that. And instead of going to the middle, I probably went all the way to the other side and started you know, living life, flying by the seat of my pants and doing whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, uh, with whoever I wanted at, at that time and, and figured out eventually and, and kind of moved the, uh, the dial back to the middle there. And probably like you had said about responsible hedonism, and, and I don't look at my life as, as, as hedonism, but, you know, I didn't, I grew up responsible and integrity and honesty and all those things are, are, are a big part of me and a big part of, of, of how I live my life and how I expect my friends to live their life and, and so on and so forth. So, but you know, I, I didn't want to um, block myself from seeking joy ever again in my life. And, and so, you know, I set my life up to where, my schedule um, allows me a, a little bit of that of what I love to do every day, right? Um, and that doesn't mean that doesn't mean I don't do it while I'm angry or while I'm sad or feeling some grief. Um, but I do do stuff every day that that makes me happy. You know, Kim. The the other thing that occurs to me while you're talking is that we have also been conditioned to believe that if you're sad or um, you know, not you're not feeling a hundred percent positive. That there's something wrong with that. Like that, there, like sadness is a negative emotion in most in most circles. And I don't feel like sadness is a negative emotion. Some of the most amazing experiences I've ever had is crying uncontrollably and feeling that intense grief and allowing my body to release just the sadness of some of the things that I've been through and and. Um, had to, you know, had to, to deal with. I remember uh, a couple of years ago, I had a stroke and um, 
it really, really scared me. It was a very, it was such an awful experience. I thought for sure I was going to die. And eventually after being in the emergency room and, uh, um, you know, given the medicine they gave me that saved my life and kind of brought me back, I was in ICU and I was uh, laying in my bed by myself and I just started sobbing uncontrollably. And it felt so relieving to get that uh, sort of terror out of my body and that feeling like, you know, I could have, never seen my family again or any of that stuff. And it didn't, it didn't scare me that I was crying. It actually felt really good to get that out of my system so that I could let my body start to heal because um, it was a really traumatic experience. And yeah, who wants to ever have a stroke? And I'm not saying I'm happy about any of it, but um, just to be able to feel the relief of expressing the sadness was not a negative thing. It was actually quite positive for me. Uh, we've talked about this before on the, on the podcast, but I I think catharsis is an important point. Absolutely. Um, You know, sitting down and actually feeling those emotions of sadness, that intense sadness, the grief, the anger. um, If we all bottle it up, I don't think I have to tell our audience what happens to you. You know, when either you compartmentalize or you you stick it away in your subconscious or or whatever, it's not going to leave. It's a recipe for depression and anxiety yeah. and physical problems. So why, so why aren't we taught? I guess we are because it's a natural bodily function and, and with these emotions and to actually be cathartic and, and get that energy out of us. So where do we get taught not to do that? Uh, you know, nowadays it starts in infancy. Um, you know, if you, if you look at the, how babies live in the world, newborn infants especially, they have no inhibition at all. Most of the time, whatever their instinctual f- feelings are, they express in the form usually of crying or screaming or, you know, or, or showing their who's ever taking care of them, usually the mom and the dad, that they're hungry or they're tired or they're, you know, they smile and they drool and, and you know, they express themselves very, very freely. But now there's this new notion uh, of teaching your infants how to be independent. And you, you, there's this notion that you got to, uh, I think it's called sleep training or some, I'm really sorry to whoever invented the term, but it's really. Oh, that, that's the one that they let the child cry it out at yes, night? Yes, okay. yeah. Um I can't even tell you how disturbing that concept is to me because when you're an infant, you are not capable of soothing yourself. It is physiologically impossible. First of all, yourself isn't even fully developed until about 18 months to, to two years. So the, this idea that you should be able to comfort yourself when you don't have one uh, is really crazy. So all it does is teach babies how to disconnect from themselves in order to fall asleep. I don't know about you, but that, that idea of disconnection from how you feel in order to go to sleep is so frightening to me and awful. But, you know, tell that to a pediatrician who wants to help parents that are tired and, and you know, cranky. And, and, and again, if you tell people that it's healthy to need each other, you're just encouraging um, in our culture weakness and, um, uh, you know, and and making people weak. And I, I just have a lot of trouble with that. Notion. Well, these people need to watch National Geographic and watch the evolution of other mammals. Well, that's Because true. that doesn't that doesn't happen with other mammals. Well, because by definition, we are prey animals. We have very short fingernails and 
and don't have any fangs. And so the only way to survive as a prey animal is in concert with other animals. There is no such thing as a, as a prey animal that lives all by him or herself. They live in groups. You know, when there's monkeys asleep, they're all sleeping all over each other, and they don't think that it's uh, shameful that they need each other. And the only ones that are excluded from the group are the ones that are really sick and on the way to dying, and the adolescent males, which everybody knows are a pain in the ass, or whatever culture they might, or whatever kind of animal they might be. So the, the you know, the, the adolescent males get shunned because the, the big guys don't want them, you know, making more baby monkeys until they're big and strong enough to dominate. But generally speaking, they all live all over each other because it's not likely you, that you're going to get consumed if you're in a group. So, um, you know, I, I, I may get shot for this, but I think the healthiest way for babies to live is in family bed, right? I mean, your, your young kids see you sleeping with your partner, if you have one, and you, you don't have any shame about sleeping with your wife or your husband, and your kid wants in on the action, and you tell them that it makes them weak because they, you know, they should be strong enough to take care of themselves. If you had a choice between sleeping with somebody that you love or sleeping alone, what choice would you make? Oh, well, that's obvious. <laughs> sleeping with somebody you love, right? And, well, of course. Now, I get that it's not always comfortable, you know, sleeping with your little kids. I can't tell you how many times I got kicked in the nuts when my kids were, you know. I think my 15-year-old actually was sleeping next to me last night. Actually, well, there so. you go, because it's natural and normal if you're feeling vulnerable to want to feel the connection to the people that you love. It's just completely healthy and normal. And we shame people for, for that. And then we tell them they should just be happy for no reason. Well, I remember I, my youngest child is, is now 15, but I still remember even with my oldest child, I think the, the co-sleeping or letting them cry it out on their own was a big topic yeah. back there yes. you know, 30 years ago and up to 15 years ago. And now I, I believe, again, I haven't had a kid in 15 years, but I believe the pendulum has kind of gone the other way to where there's more promotion of, of co-sleeping arrangements and, and then there's, so. there's the huge naysayers about that as well. You know, uh, this young man, high school age kid came to see me about 10 years ago. And for whatever reason, he was throwing up on the way to school every day. And his parents were quite worried about him because, you know, he was losing weight and he was anxious and uncomfortable. And I sat down with this kid and was talking to him a bit about his life. And he told me that when he was, uh, a little kid, like three, four years old, he couldn't sleep easily by himself. He would wake up really scared. And he would come into his parents' bedroom and sort of stand at the foot of their bed, hoping to get invited into the bed uh, because he was so scared, feeling alone. And his father uh, was really angry with him for not being a man. And so, you know, he would yell and scream at his kid and take him back to bed and, you know, tell him not to leave the room. So eventually what the kid figured out is that his sister, who was a couple years older than him, um, would welcome him. And so they, you know, they, they slept together in a really sweet way. And he was comforted for a long time until the dad found out what he was doing. And the dad came into the room and, you know, in the middle of the night and picked him up and threw him in his bedroom and took off his belt and beat the shit out of him and said to him, if you ever do it again, this, you know, this beating is going to be minor compared to what, you know, lies ahead. So the dad took off his belt and he, hanging on a, and he hung it on a nail on the inside of the door and shut the door so that the kid would stare at the belt every night, knowing what would happen to him if he left his bed. And so eventually he learned as time went by to just disconnect from himself and fall asleep. 
But by the time he became a teenager, he was so, so traumatized by those experiences as a kid that he actually became a heroin addict. And the reason that he was throwing up every day is because heroin makes you throw up. And finally, you know, we were able to figure out what the real problem was, that, you know, he had post-traumatic stress left over from being beat up for needing comfort. Isn't, isn't, isn't bedwetting kind of in that same category? Sometimes it's an indication that somebody's pretty anxious. Um, and as another example, I met a woman who is probably in her 40s at the time I met her, and she was having trouble in her relationship with her husband. Um, he was a Vietnam veteran who uh, probably experienced, you know, some of the worst that a person could ever experience. And he came home with the philosophy uh, that you don't talk about anything that's negative, and you smile all the time, and all you do, all you're supposed to do is be happy and focus on the goodness that life has to offer. So, you know, he was a nice fellow, and they had a, an okay marriage for a while. But, you know, people have stuff in life that they need to deal with. And any time that this woman brought up anything negative, you know, he would tell her that she was there, there was something wrong with her and that she should just focus on the, on the good, happy things in life and not focus on the negative and everything would be fine. And it got to the point where she just couldn't take it anymore and that the relationship wasn't viable after a certain point in time because she, um, no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't be okay all the time. She couldn't be happy all the time because there is stuff in life you got to deal with. And the sad thing is that, you know, they, they eventually got a divorce because he absolutely refused to budge from his position of Mr. Happy. And, you know, it was, it was okay for her because she was able to kind of reconnect with herself. But it was a really sad thing for both of them because they loved each other, but he would not budge from that position. So this is uh, 2022. And at some point in the last, handful of years the world has tilt its axis and it, it seems like we live in these unparalleled times um, where negativity is is really put out in the forefront whether that's in war whether that's in politics whether that's in the economy So people are probably sitting there thinking, okay, I, I understand this whole emotional neutrality thing. I understand social media is what it is. Um, I'm looking for more joy and fulfillment in my life. And, and the question is, do I have to block out all the external forces to be able to get that? Or how do I filter, if I can control what I can control internally, how do I filter out those external forces that, that may block me from achieving that neutral um, emotional state, if that makes sense. It makes great sense. I think that um, to be a bit more discriminating would really help because if you are watching something on TV, as an example, on the news, and you notice that, that all it is is one negative, frightening story after another. Yeah, they want you to buy something. Yeah, that's and it doesn't matter what your politics are because whether you're watching Fox News or CNN, it's all the same negativity, negativity, negativity. It's jaded either way. So. Right. It's all designed to make you be feel afraid, and um, then you're going to go buy the stuff you don't need and indulge in all kinds of other behaviors that are not healthy for you because you got to deal with a fear one way or the other, and if you don't deal with it directly, you're going to deal with it by medicating yourself in some fashion. So. Um, what I ask people to consider is that, 
you know, it's important to know what's happening in the world, but you don't have to bathe in it. You don't have to uh, uh, spend hours on end. Have it all consuming. Right. And to recognize that um, there's actually a lot of really good stuff that's happening in the world at the same time, but good stuff doesn't sell. Um, I've, I've, which is interesting because we were just having this conversation on everybody has to be happy, the fear right. of not being happy, right. and you just sell it doesn't sell. Well, right? it, doesn't, it doesn't sell in the media, right? But it, it sells doesn't. books. Well, it may sell books, but you know, I, I, but it sells books only because people are not happy, and they think there's something wrong with them because they should be happy. It's a contradiction in terms. Right. So again, I, I, you know, I'm not saying put your head in the sand and don't pay attention to what's happening around you. But don't overdo it and make sure that whatever sources of information that you're getting are not being juiced up in order to create a feeling that is really unhealthy for you because it doesn't do anything to watch all of this stuff and, and make yourself feel really bad. You know, I, I spent a lot of time during the day uh, listening to stand-up comedy because I really like to laugh. And even though some of it's not as respectful as it could be, it makes me laugh really hard. Plus, there are a couple of websites that um, only produce the good things that are happening in the world. So I subscribe to these sites, and they send me all this amazing scientific and other types of information that nobody hears about because it's not on the news, and it's certainly not in the paper or or on social media, all about the amazing things that people do for each other and um, in the name of science in order to try to uh, solve a lot of the really serious problems that we have. And I think if people were willing to spend way more time looking at the inspirational things that their fellow humans are doing, in addition maybe to the tragic things that we do to each other, that balance would sure uh, take a lot of the anxiety out of our lives. Yeah, it it surely seems like, you know, the negative um, and and the contradiction um, and the bad pathology is, is certainly being put out in the forefront now and that uh, living living life is becoming on a day-to-day basis becoming more difficult um, if you do pay attention to the, the external world and, and not keep your eyes on your own paper and, and, and do yeah. what makes you happy yeah there is there is there any and, and maybe we've we've broached this over the last 50 minutes but is there commonality that you see because again most of the clients that you see, this is a problem for them. Um, is there is there a commonality that, that you see that kind of they can get over that hump um, and, and start getting some joy into their life on a consistent basis? Or is well, it more of an individual scenario? Well, I, I mean, I have a global philosophy that um, I sort of bring to my professional practice, which is that I try not to uh, pathologize people. And most people come to see me expecting me to agree with them, as we've talked about before, that there's something wrong with them and that I'm supposed to give you a diagnosis and I'm supposed to come up with a treatment plan and then I'm supposed to implement that treatment plan to cure what ails you. Which is interesting because that, for most people, that's like a sigh of relief. I finally, finally got the diagnosis I was looking for, right? Right. There is something wrong with me. Thank God. Yeah. Um, so again, I... My idea is that not all your symptoms, but a lot of the symptoms that people have psychologically are a way of expressing the deeper wounds inside of the person. So 
you know, I ask people to recognize that, yeah, it doesn't feel good to be anxious. I get that. It certainly doesn't feel good to be depressed or, uh, you know, have compulsive behaviors or whatever, whatever it is that, um, that you have sort of, you know, gravitated toward because there was nothing else available to help you feel better. Uh, once a person comes to understand that most of our suffering has been at the hands of the people that brought us into the world or other people in the world, and that it's really what happens to you and what didn't happen for you and sometimes equal measure that's created your suffering. And it's not that I'm encouraging people to see themselves as being victims, but to recognize that victimization is something that leads toward post-traumatic stress and, and other uh, forms of suffering. And that if you can recognize that, that it's not really you that's the problem, it's dealing with what happened to you. And again, what didn't happen for you being, you know, deprived is as equally damaging as being abused. And you start to heal that stuff. There's a natural feeling of relief and, uh, and a greater capacity to experience joy once you go through that process. Now, as you know from your experience and I know from mine, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. It takes a lot of courage. You have to be willing to cry. You got to be willing to deal with the anger and the, and the fear and all the different emotions that got bottled up inside of you from the time you were a little kid. But once you release that stuff, it really frees you up to create way more joy in your life. Yeah, you're right. We've talked about it, you know, numerous times in, in different subjects on the podcast about, you know, peeling off multiple layers of the onion. Right. And it, it's not easy. It, it is painful. But again, going back to the catharsis theory, it's necessary to, to get to the point of this emotional neutrality to be able yeah. to, to, to be able to, to seek joy and to live a more fulfilled life. Um, I, I don't know how to, to break it down in, in more simple terms to, to our audience or to people that are interested in listening. But, but again, I, it's going to sound like a, I'm beating a dead horse here, but I know a lot of people that think they're very evolved and that they're, you know, in the psychological forefront of, of their lives um, and I have a different opinion about that, right? Because I think that they've done just the, the tip of the work, right? And they think that that's enough for them. And, and again, maybe maybe it's enough for them to be able to to get to the next place in life that they they want to get. But it's it's just it's not that easy. But I don't also want to to scare people away from from doing the exercise is needed because everything that we talk about in, on this podcast and all the guests that we've talked about or have taught on this podcast, you have to do the work. It's, well, that, I mean, yeah, you're preaching to the choir now, so. Yeah, and, and, and again, you know, I don't want to scare away people on, on the podcast to, to say, you know, I'm sorry that willpower doesn't work and, and I'm sorry that unicorns in the universe don't work. And if I had magic fairy dust, I'd give it to you all, but I don't. Right. I mean, I've, I've had that, you know, uh, that ideology in my head at, at one point in my life because we're all looking for the quick cure. We're all looking for the, the skipping some steps to get to the top, right? Because for whatever reason that, that we, oh, think there's a finish line to, to whatever we're doing in our life, that we don't look at life as a journey. Right, that, that again, 
some of the chapters are going to be shorter. Some of the chapters are going to be longer. Some of the chapters are going to be happy. Some of the chapters are going to be incredibly sad. But we're all on this journey. We're all writing our own book here. And, you know, again, if, you know, I can sum up whatever episode this is going to be, 24, is that you have to do the work. And you have to be willing to do the work. And you got to have an accountability partner. Um, in your life, I'm telling you, I'm promising you, is going to look a lot different going forward. You know, Kim, you're absolutely right about that. And the other thing I just wanted to reinforce, and I know we've already said it 800 times here today, if you can leave the notion that there's such a thing as happiness, it can bring you an enormous amount of relief. Because then you're not going to feel like there's something wrong with you. <laughs> yeah, don't believe not. in happiness. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be okay. Yeah, don't believe in the ha- well. Don't believe in happiness as a state of being. Look at it as a feeling that you can create for yourself. Disneyland's going to disagree, right? Well, you know, the Magic Kingdom has a a, a basement, the that's happiest filled. place on earth. Well, I don't know if you've ever looked at the uh, the, the videos of what's underneath Disneyland. It, uh, it's not the happiest place on earth. It's like any other place, right? There's sewers and all uh, kinds of. I other didn't stuff mean to there. digress. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, so, you know, again, if you can recognize that there's nothing wrong with you, you're not walking around happy all the time and that, and that neutrality gives you the strength to face the difficult parts of life and, um, the ability to create joy much more easily. Yeah. So I, I want to apologize to our listeners that, that, uh, people that tuned in that, that I just busted the myth of, uh, or I shouldn't say I did, we did, busted the myth that happiness was an achievable uh, thing thing in your life. Before we end this hour uh, discussion, I do want to talk about, you know, again, trusting your faith and intuition, right? And and want you to talk about a little bit about that in in terms of achieving the emotional neutrality, because again, you know, not only our book, but the podcast and, and everything that we talk about on this podcast really comes back to, to faith and intuition and, and, and how that's the best navigator in your life. You know, Kim, I will tell you that when I discovered neutrality as a space to be in, uh, from an intuitive perspective, it just felt really, really good to me. It took so, so much, uh, it brought me so much relief that there wasn't something wrong with me that I didn't walk around, you know, as Mr. Happy. (laughs) <laughs> and and that it gave me permission, you know, to experience both the ups and downs of life and not feel like there was something wrong with me that, uh, that I wasn't happy all the time. So you're right. It was a very strong intuitive feeling. Wasn't there something back in the 70s? Wasn't there actually a Mr. Happy? Or, yes, I, Mr. Happy, yes. Yes, and then, and then there was the keychains with the happy face and, uh-huh. and all those on that. I mean... I'm sure they didn't take it into this context, but, you know, again, going back to, to simpler times well, that's where, where they, we didn't overthink everything. Well, they invented pet rocks at that time. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, folks, we're, we're going to end this, uh, this scintillating discussion on, on the fear of uh, not achieving happiness. And, and trust me, there's more myths in psychology that, uh, that we're going to talk about and, and uh, we're going to have a different opinion on. So stay tuned. Thanks, Dana. We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.